Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Innovation Capital presented by PatSnap. Today, our host, Ray Chohan, sits down with Kevin C., Vice President of Research for Lux Research, a leading provider of tech-enabled research and advisory solutions, helping their clients achieve growth through technology innovation. Today, Ray and Kevin discuss a topic that Ray is really passionate about, this idea of exploring the role of AI in improving the R&D and innovation process. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's interview with Kevin. Enjoy. So Kevin, welcome to Innovation Capital. It's, it's great to have you, have you here today and would love to kick off with a little bit of your story really, Kevin. Would love to hear your story in terms of your background and how you ended up at Lux Research and how you became one of the preeminent thought leaders within AI and R&D. Yeah, thanks, Ray. Appreciate the invitation. Happy to be here. Um, my background is really I'm trained as a scientist, so uh, did a PhD and a postdoc, largely focused on developing materials, devices for a variety of applications, uh, from sensors to energy harvesting. So deep in the lab, uh, designing and building and testing. Um, at that point. After I wrapped up that academic portion, I was really interested in the commercialization pathway for emerging technology is some of the things that I saw my peers working on in the lab. Um, but I, I also had the sneaking suspicion a lot of them, a lot of these projects might not have a lot of promise to them. So I became very interested in what does it take for a technology to, to be commercialized, to be successful, and ultimately create some value for somebody. Um, so that interest led me to Lux. Um, which is really an ideal place to to foster some of those interests. Uh, we really value the technology strength, but also marry that with some uh, business understanding of what it takes to actually commercialize things. So there I've been part of just scaling our business model to look at everything from energy technologies, renewables, uh, expanded us into things like digital and AI, which we're going to talk about today. I had a stint helping lead our product which was really developing and internalizing uh, AI capabilities ourselves. Um, so just a variety of different roles, had a lot of fun and uh, just looking forward to, to bringing that to the conversation. Today. Brilliant. And, and it's interesting looking at 2020 and beyond. Um, we have a sentiment that we're entering hopefully a glorious era on how machine learning in particular will really impact the innovation process. But before we look at more of a forward-looking outlook in the next five, six years, would love to get your professional insight on the last decade and how we've led up to the stage and where we are going to start the digital journey within R&D and innovation. Do you have some background context on things which happened, some kind of historical tailwinds which led to us to where we are today, Kevin? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question, Ray. And I think 
it largely depends on how you define digital. So digital can mean a lot of things. It could mean AI for discovery, which is maybe the sexy version of it, but it could also be more operational things like just tools to manage your innovation pipeline and, and things like that. So I'd say across the board, we're still in a pretty early stage. So there's definitely been advances. There's definitely been pilots uh, where they try new things. But I, I, these these grand ambitions of automating insight, automating the R&D process, largely no one's really there. Uh, you see people trying uh, isolated pilots and different things like that. You do see other digital tools, which is a little bit more advanced, with which is just really managing knowledge or managing pipeline of ideas. Um, so again, depending on how you really define digital, you know, is it this aggressive world changing approach or is it more sometimes mundane managing a process? It really depends on how you look at it. But I, I really think we we're only now kind of entering into that phase where we'll start to see some of these more disruptive applications of digital. Is it fair to say we're in the first innings? And if we are or are not, where are we on that journey in terms of getting there? So you, you talk about the fuzzy front end, which we're really passionate about and find really compelling. So looking at, say, the fuzzy front front end initially, in terms of starting that journey on how machine learning will impact that part of the process, whereabouts are we, Kevin? I'd say on that particular aspect, really where you're ideating and feeding those ideas into an innovation funnel, uh, really figuring out the next thing to work on. We're really early days in terms of AI influencing that or or uh, transforming that. Um, so I would say it's it's in the early days there. We see people, again, trying pilots, trying machine learning. You know, how do I find interesting papers that are associated with things that I'm interested in? You see things like that starting to occur. But in terms of really scaling that like signal detection and idea generation in an automated means or informed by data or analytics, I'd say we're, we're really quite early stage there. And we haven't seen anyone really push that, that fuzzy front end forward really aggressively just yet. So if you were to use more of an, say, the start of the internet analogy in the 90s, what, what year are we in when it comes to really machine learning really revolutionizing that that fuzzy front end, Kevin? Yeah, in terms of that front end, I'd say, I mean, just a bit of a tell on how old I am, but basically I remember getting to university and, you know, it's really the onset of uh, the, the Ethernet connections and the T1 and all that and just opening up your eyes to the power of the internet. Uh, and it was really uncharted territory. I think that's probably a good analog for where we are now in terms of really taking a pretty established process in terms of ideation on that fuzzy front end, just exploring the possibilities really, uh, knowing that the tools are there, but not quite really understanding how to use them, what they can do. Um, so I'd say it's, it's, it is definitely early days there. Brilliant. Oh, wow, Kevin, you're bringing back some Memories there, my friend, with T1 connection. <laughs> so that's some good context for some of maybe our, our older listeners. So so really, we're at like maybe 96, 97 in terms of maturity. Is that is that fair to say to use a? Yeah, I, I'd say that that's a fair you know analog in terms of timeline. Yeah, brilliant. And, and in terms of some of the trailblazers, Kevin, because I've seen some of your work 
highlighting some interesting case studies where there's a few organizations really moving the needle on how AI, machine learning, deep neural nets are really supporting that innovation process, be it the fuzzy front end or later in the cycle. Have you got some favorite case studies which you think have really sent a ripple in the market? Yeah, I think not so much that there's a plethora of players on that ideation and front end part of the funnel that we're discussing. There's definitely players there. They're emerging. They're doing interesting work. I think both of our firms are doing interesting work there. But I think where you see more maturity is is further down that funnel, which is more into something like materials informatics, where using a, 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 a ton of data at your disposal to try and figure out what do I make next that will have the properties that I want? So we've seen in, in our research and the work we do, a lot of interesting companies like that. One that pops out is, is someone like Citrine Informatics um, doing some interesting work there. But in terms of the specific, that ideation front end part, I'd say it's, it's, it's still a bit of an open playing field, really trying out how to develop the right tools that are useful for the scientists on the ground. Um, and I think there's a ton of interesting work there, but I, I wouldn't say that uh, you know the singular leader has emerged yet. It's fascinating you mentioned the materials informatics space. It's an area that we're deeply passionate about. And yeah, we, we love what Citrine and a, and a couple of other folks in the Boston area are doing in that space. So, so on a broader sense, is it fair to say you're seeing more progression further up in the funnel so when we get into maybe maybe the project life cycle management space plm where it's going more deeper into the workflow where you're seeing the impact of ai and more at the development and kind of launch phase you're seeing more kind of maturity yeah again it it, de- it depends on how you think about it because that's, i would say that you're right if you, you put materials informatics depending on how you define you know, the stage of the funnel, it is a little bit further. It's still early stage, but you're, you're moving past that ideation phase into actual discovery. You know, what is the thing I'm going to work on uh, and pushing that forward more aggressively. So I think there's definitely more happening there. I think if you go back to things like project management and life cycle, you know, those things don't really require AI necessarily. So I think it's a case where, Certainly it's digital, but you know, to manage a pipeline of companies or manage a pipeline of projects more efficiently, you don't really need AI necessarily. So it's just you know, what aspect of the funnel you're at, which tools are you most interested in? And, and I, I guess we'll, we'll probably come back to this, but I think something that's important is that AI is not always the right tool. You don't always need AI to solve all your problems. So I think that's something to keep in mind that there's, there's low-hanging fruit as well. Mm, it's interesting. And you published some fascinating research talking about topic modeling, NLP, and how it has the potential to really move the needle on that on that fuzzy front end. But in reality, when you look in market, it's pretty much underutilized at the moment. Do you think there's been an accelerant this year, especially with COVID and R&D being done remote more than ever? Is there any events that have occurred in 2020 where you see some form factor of an accelerant 
regarding topic modeling and NLP on, on the front end. Yeah, there I, I haven't really seen COVID necessarily as an enabler or an accelerant at that, that very, you know, we call it weak signal detection or early detection of ideas. You know, you have seen it obviously in some of the, the big obvious things like like vaccines or drug discovery, which again is a little bit further down. Uh, it's not the, quite the wide open playing field that signal detection is where you're just looking for in the wide world of everything, what can I possibly work on? So where I would say there's there's been advances, and again, some of these pockets of pilots um, with something like NLP or a, a topic model or a classifier is, you know, a research group or a company finds uh, a paper of interest. They can actually use some of these AI tools to say, what are other papers like this? that are worth me looking into. And I don't wanna read a thousand papers. I can't read a thousand papers. What are the top 10 that should be relevant based on my interest in this one topic? So that's where you can do some recognition of, of, of what's interesting to you, some filtering. And so we have heard of some more larger corporate players and others starting to play around with those tools a little more. I wouldn't say it's been built into the larger infrastructure just yet in many cases, but you do see people exploring some of those tools. I don't think the events of 2020 have necessarily accelerated that particular use. I think it's, it is just this evolution where uh, particularly corporations are, are becoming more sophisticated about AI and they're starting to poke around and try and understand how they can use it. And, and, and in terms of, from, from, from the from the customer end and looking at R and D leaders, innovation leaders, CEOs who are very much have innovation front of mind, are, are you seeing? What are you seeing in terms of philosophy? Is it build, home, grow, um, or buy or partner? What prong are you seeing certain sectors go down? Because we see a mixture, but we'd love to get your lens. Yeah, we, we see a mix as well. And I, I think this is where it can be a pretty sticky situation for a lot of corporations because their strength isn't necessarily in building almost, it's really almost building enterprise software for scientists. And you know that well, right? But it's it's challenging. It's a, it's a, it's a very demanding use case. It's a very demanding audience. <laughs> And so, so what you see is you see corporations sometimes have their IT department brought in to develop software, tools, and then sometimes, you know, the user interface or other things are just not very good and it's hard to get traction for them internally. So we've, you know, we believe that there's value in, in probably bringing internal expertise to bear. You know, you know your customers essentially in that case, they know them very well, but they're not always the best equipped um, to, to deliver those solutions. So we've seen some missteps where you build stuff that people don't use. Largely because of that, it, it does, you know, from my perspective, it makes sense to buy in this case or partner. Um, and it can be a variety of different kinds of partners. There's huge enterprises that, that could help you build it. There's emerging players. But the, the key part is that you're looking at a mixture of AI and data science, data science capabilities that firstly, not every company has. In fact, that, that, that skill set is in huge demand. 
uh, and it's it's hard to find strong people there. But you're also building software in many cases. So it's not just doing data science in the back with uh, crunching data and just spitting out a result. It's actually building interfaces and things that people have to use. And again, th these aren't necessarily things corporations in various industries are good at. Uh, so to that extent, you know, we've tried to push people towards our clients who ask about it. And to me personally, I think it does make sense to get that expertise from partners and make sure you integrate it with the knowledge that exists internally. And it's fascinating you mentioned that momentum around how enterprises, large ones, are trying to scale out their data science effort and scale that headcount. Where are you seeing some of the hypergrowth in terms of industries or, or subsectors where they're really pushing the agenda on data science, decision science, and trying to really ramp up, ramp up that internal capability, Kevin? Yeah, I'd, I'd say a huge, a huge effort is really around Industry 4.0 manufacturing. Um, to, to some extent, it's a, it's a well-known optimization problem. So throwing data science at things like uh, predictive maintenance or quality or other things just makes sense. It's something they understand in terms of an, in terms of a need or a use case, and they can bring data science to innovate within that specific set of use cases, whether it's supply chain manufacturing. So it's you can think about it also as an innovation funnel, not necessarily as idea turning into product, but in an instance like that, it's the idea turning into a deployment or operational use internally. Same deal, you have to find the technology, you have to put it through gates, you have to assess whether it can work, uh, but you do see data scientists in demand for that application because it's a well-known problem, it's well understood, and there can be an immediate benefit to the organization that they can measure in terms of dollars. Um, so that's that's definitely a place where we see and kind of a clamoring to, to bring on that data science talent. And forward looking, where, where do you see some of the blue oceans where data science is going to make a, a meaningful impact in that, say, stage gate process or generally the, the overall R&D and innovation process? Yeah, one we've talked about, and I think the that materials discovery, for example, you know, essentially taking the learnings from the pharma industry, uh, which has been a bit more advanced in terms of AI for things like drug discovery, and porting that into other analogous type of industries like developing a polymer with a certain set of properties. Uh, I think that that's you know that's also an area that's near and dear to my heart from a, a background perspective. But I think that it's tremendously impactful to leverage all the articles, all the papers, um, all the results from experiments. If you can structure and process that data, you can turn that into uh, really accelerating the discovery and design and production of things with the properties that you want. Um, so that's something that I think is a particularly interesting application of AI. On a totally different front, I think there's a lot of interest um, in the CPG world or the consumer goods world where you can actually use AI to better understand your end user, in this case, the customer, and trickle that back into your, your innovation funnel. So what are the trends I'm seeing in my customer base? What are, the, what are the different data sets I can pull together? What are the patterns that I can pull out? How can that better inform 
the products that I design next. Um, so you see kind of a virtuous circle there where you design products ostensibly with some measure of AI and IoT embedded that gathers more data about the customer, you feed that back in. So you see this capability of really understanding uh, really your end user or customer better. Um, and I think that can only make that whole product development cycle more efficient and more effective. And it's much, you mentioned the materials informatics space a couple of times, and that's an area which is very much close to our heart as well. Is that a compelling area in terms of ML really moving the needle for material science teams across different industries? Are you are you getting good sentiment, good feedback where the, the buyers of that type of capability kind of really get it and, and are on board? Yeah, I'd say if, if you're talking to the right person at the right company, so obviously you're, you're, in this case, we're talking about the chemicals and materials the sector. They know how hard it is to design the next product, whether it's a small molecule or whether it's a composite or a polymer. And I've been in the lab trying to design these things myself and it's, it's hard and there's trial and error and there's inference. And so there's, there's, Definitely an understanding that if it works, which is a big if, the ability to sift through all the existing data to better inform the, where I should put my resources is a huge value add to a corporation like that. It can take, it can speed up time to delivering a product, cut down on R&D costs, lots of, of benefits there. So I do think, you know, it's it's a tough customer base in that sense that they they've done things one way for a long time but we do see increasing appetite to to use digital tools to try and facilitate accelerate that that particular use case because you know if you get it right it's great but you know, it's, it's probably not quite the same scale as drug discovery because that's even more costly but it is a pretty huge value add if you can get to profitable products faster um, so that's that's the thing that we see people being really attracted to. Yeah, it's funny. It's interesting you, you segue into the drug discovery space. Again, we're seeing some brilliant developments in that area for the last 24 months, in particular from the market, really seeing that philosophical buy-in and that eagerness to deploy ML at the bench level, at the discovery stage and, and further up the stage in the drug development cycle. Um, what, what are your thoughts on some of the, the low-hanging fruit in that area in the next two or three years? Are there some great examples which really catch your eye? And, and where do you see some of the compelling growth opportunities on when you look at AI-driven, intelligent drug discovery, Kevin? Yeah, I'd say uh, this is not a, the, the space I spend most of my time looking at, but in, in terms of observing the market and seeing the the things like Moderna and how much they've really emphasized digital and AI as part of their uh, overall corporate strategy, really, and building the company. And that's obviously seen fruits um, in the vaccine development and other things. So that's a, an acute example of where COVID showed real value for digitalizing that discovery process. So there's some, you know, acute, obvious ones like that. Overall, I think there's just such a vast 
set of data that they're sitting on as an industry or as a sector. So genetic data, which is just only becoming easier to acquire, easier to uh, test for and synthesize, those types of data sets plus clinical outcomes, this idea of where you can really correlate things far upstream with outcomes in the patient, there's just a tremendous amount of, of opportunity in, in leveraging, leveraging that going forward. And I think I just, I would be hard pressed to pick one particular um, application for it because I think it's so widespread, but I really do think uh, I'm, I'm attracted to that particular problem just because of how vast that data is. And and we'll probably get into this, but really the quality of the, the insights you get out really depend on the data you put in. Uh, and I think there's just so much of it that that drug discovery is is pretty ripe for for using AI. So, so when it comes to, uh, it's fascinating you mentioned that data quality piece and that whole rigor around normalization. Um, we hear that sentiment a lot. I mean, building an ML model is one thing, but getting your house in order and actually having your date, the boring stuff, your data operations set up in a best-in-class fashion. Where do you see organizations on that front? Do you think the enterprise is actually truly ready to really optimize the value from machine learning and subsectors of ML like NLP and, and topic modeling, or is, it, or is it still a journey? It's definitely still a journey. And I would say the the vast majority of companies are not well positioned to leverage the data they have. And that's why they run into problems bringing in a partner or a vendor to help them, you know, you know, plug data into my AI black box and churn out, you know, churn out valuable insights. They realize very quickly that if the quality of that data going in is bad or poorly structured, poorly labeled and so on, so are the results. So dirty data equals dirty results. And I think that's where the frustration comes in where everybody wants to use AI, but doesn't necessarily recognize the amount of work it takes to prepare yourself from a data perspective to get good results back out. And I would, in my experience, talking with corporations or others who are interested in using some of these tools like NLP is just generally running into a bottleneck with the, the data inputs to, to do it well. Um, so it's a huge, you know, a, lot of, a lot of cost has to be assigned and prepared for into just cleaning up the data sets you have, whether it's lab notebooks or whether it's external data like papers, you know, labeling it and uh, structuring it as best you can, huge issues. And I, I do think it's a major bottleneck. It's interesting you mentioned that. So there's, there's a group out in the Bay Area, I think, Kevin, called Scale.ai, and they're doing some really fascinating work with all the big auto manufacturers on getting their house in order, on enabling the journey to autonomous vehicles, especially some of the traditional players outside of Tesla. So we are seeing a few companies really being a great partner on that front. But looking at other industries, you're looking at the the chemical space or even pharma or or FMCG or or the IT space. 
What is the actual problem on the data side? Is it exec buy-in? Is it just legacy infrastructure and plumbing? What are the what are the things that need to be done? Do you think in the next couple of years to have those organizations optimized on a data cleanliness front to really optimize the value from ML? Yeah, so that's a that that almost speaks to some of the dysfunctions you can see in a large organization in terms of truly understanding the problem to be solved and what it takes to solve it. And that's not endemic just to large corporations. That's that's a problem, I think, for lots of organizations. But I, I do think there's not always transparency when these initiatives are messaged or launched, really just how hard they're going to be and just what level of results you can expect out of them. So I I believe and have seen a lot of initiatives launched without really a lot of due diligence necessarily about how hard it's going to be or what outcomes they're expected. Uh, you know, in the, in the most extreme case, it's let's use AI because it's AI and see what happens. Um, and, you know, I see increasingly people are becoming more sophisticated than that. But certainly in the early, quote unquote, digital transformation days, you, you, you did not see a lot of rigor go into choosing the problems, choosing the right tools. So when you bring up the data problem, you're basically seeing organizations not really unified in understanding what it's going to take to get those good results back out, like I talked about before. And I think that requires really understanding the true cost what's the cost and really the cost benefit. So what is the work I'm going to have to put in? I can bring in sexy vendor X, but how much work and how much are they going to charge me just to clean up my own data before I can even start to put it into the black box and start to get results out. So I think there's just often a lack of understanding exactly how challenging that's going to be. And you, you pointed out it, it could be purely the where that data resides it could be unifying data sets from different parts of a system or different parts of an organization, all kinds of infrastructure issues. Uh, so that data management part is, is I think, more challenging than people often understand. Is there any companies or oh, it doesn't have to be a specific company or industry who so you think are really moving the needle on that front who are improving that readiness where they can really truly ingest an AI black box and really optimize the value is, is there sectors that catch your eye who are potential trailblazers on that front? Yeah, it's going to, it's going to sound repetitive, but I, I do think uh, manufacturing is a place where you start to see people focused on pulling data out of different systems and unifying it. Um, so I won't go into all the, the players necessarily on that here, but I think there is an understanding of, my infrastructure has um, equipment from all these different vendors and just having a way to plug into all those different systems and put all that data in one place can let me do a lot more interesting things with it, ultimately, whether it's AI or other analytics approaches. So again, it's, it's a, that's one particular place where I see people understanding the challenge of the problem, but also starting to move towards solving it by having the right connectors to pull out the right data. Um, but again, that's that's pretty far down the the application funnel. 
compared to, you know, looking at journal articles or something for R and D, right? Those are those are pretty different use cases. And uh, when you do have the the data operations in order, and you see an enterprise who do have quality rigor around that, are you seeing true value being realized? Because we're we're seeing we're seeing some interesting moments where some some sectors really realize the value and then some have a lot of hype but don't really realize meaningful value from AI being deployed in R&D. What are some of the results you're seeing in the market in terms of true impact? Yeah, besides the the case studies, you know, the, these big um, clear values like vaccine discovery or something like we talked about before, in most traditional physical industries, uh, I'd say non-pharma based, I haven't seen this a huge win uh, from AI yet. And and I think that's not because it can't, but I do think there is just these organizational barriers. Again, it comes down to, are you picking the right problem? Are you picking the right tool? Um, are you getting small wins before you get your big wins? I think there's a way to build up to some of these more enterprise-wide solutions that involve winning at a small scale. And I I don't know how systematic people have been about identifying those small wins first um, and really optimizing or increasing their chance of success because you got to win small before you win big, particularly in this case, I think. So I, I do think there's definite room to, to really think about the problems you're trying to solve. You know, that, that example I gave where I want to find papers like this one. You know, not huge in terms of uh, executing, but maybe pretty decent return on investment if you actually do it in a way that scientists can focus on the top 10 papers. Um, so I think there's a way to be more thoughtful about the scale of the problem you choose, what you're trying to solve, uh, and really being thoughtful about that. And I, you know, maybe my cynical view is that I, I don't know how thoughtful people have been about that in the early stages. We see that as well, Kevin, where there's a lot of hype where people try boiling the ocean and there isn't much deep first principles thinking around, let's look at a pointed problem and let's do that well and kind of land and expand from there. So uh, it, it's fascinating you mentioned that because we also hear that sentiment in the market where folks are really enthusiastic, they get it, they do understand understand the potential fundamental value, but there is misalignment around taking things in baby steps. So, so, that, so that confusion around kind of nail it before you scale it around AI being deployed in the innovation process what do you think it's down to, really? If you really look at it in its first principles, is it the people? Is it the the vendors in the market in terms of the way they're positioning, what they offer? What is the kind of background to that kind of dislocation in the market? Yeah, I mean, I think some of that's endemic to, if, if we're focused on large corporations in this case, they're generally bad at moving quickly or adopting new things. Not because they're not smart, but just there's a lot of just organizational obstacle to, to trying new things, particularly in a conservative industry. So I think 
in most cases, these companies are not digitally native. So they have to learn a lot about AI. What is it? What can it do? What are the different flavors? Machine learning, supervised versus unsupervised. How does that matter for the problem I'm solving? And not all of them effectively are able to answer those questions early on to point them in the right uh, direction. So I do think that there's a lot of aspect of just education. Because if you go into any one of these organizations, you'll find really cutting edge, really smart people who who understand every nuance. There's going to be people like that. They are in these organizations. It is about them aligning these broader functions uh, to execute together. And that's a really complicated problem in a big organization because you have to get buy-in at the highest levels all the way down through uh, throughout the organization down to the people who are doing the work uh, hands-on day-to-day. So getting that kind of unity of vision, executing it together efficiently, it's just hard. It's hard. It's hard with anything. It's particularly hard with a technology like AI that a lot of them might not be familiar with. So it fundamentally looks like it's people <laughs> in its simplest format. Yeah, summing up, it, it is. People are people are complicated. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just need to get out of the way. So, so just having some fun with it now. So imagine a world where on the data front, most industries have had the house in order, the people piece is aligned, data science capability is in place. Having some fun with this, Kevin, what does utopia look like? What are some of the blue sky, really sexy opportunities out there on how machine learning, AI, computer vision, other form factors of AI can really transform the innovation process? What are some of the the holy grails which you guys gently keep your eye on and really excite you? Yeah, I think one of them really exciting, I mean, to me, exciting is, can I make valuable products faster? And that sounds a little bit boring, but but I think whatever industry you're in, whether it's, whether your end product is a drug or a coding or a device, is can I make a better version of this, a more valuable version to my customer? And can I do it fast? Because I, I do think at some point there's going to be a more level playing field. Obviously, there's going to be winners and losers and people who are better at it than others. But AI is, is going to be fairly democratized. I mean, anyone is, is going to be able to do it if they want. Um, so the ones who really can successfully translate those insights that come out of whatever data they put into their AI algorithm to really just build really interesting things that are more valuable. For me as a consumer, for example, just having better things that are more have more utility to me and have them come out more frequently or more often or provide more value to me. Um, I think that's the thing we can hope for. Um, and I think it's going to happen. Um, it just depends on what sector. It depends on what industry. But if we if we truly envision a world where everyone can do this pretty well, uh, we should get better stuff on the back end. Looking ahead, I mean, do, do you see any macro tailwinds 
really fast tracking how AI will impact that entire R&D process. So for example, we're seeing some really interesting developments on edge computing and, and also amazing businesses like NVIDIA and the, the, the potential huge merger of ARM and NVIDIA really creating that end-to-end stack when it comes to enabling AI at scale. But that is just one example. But do you see other macro tailwinds, which would really be a force multiplier to accelerate this vision of AI-driven research and development? I think you pointed out an interesting interesting one in edge computing where uh, not needing a ton of computational power and getting insights out of AI faster at the edge. I think that's fascinating. I think in terms of macro tailwinds, I, I, I think that there's generally an understanding that AI can be transformative and that it's coming. So I do think you see governmental policies and regulations put into place or support for AI development. You certainly see that in China, for example. Some of these governments starting to recognize the impact of the application of these technologies will absolutely push this forward and help industries grow and um, and will help uh, motivate, I think, the application of AI and R&D. So I do think there's not just market forces, there's also regulatory forces um, that can also push these forward. But I think you, you know, if you're looking for a, a signal, you know, you go to LinkedIn and just look up all the people with digital transformation in their title. Um, these functions, these jobs, these things are popping up everywhere in, in all kinds of industries, not just for marketing and not just in traditional tech, uh, but companies that make pumps and companies that do a variety of different things. These, This understanding of how disruptive these technologies can be are coming to just a variety of industries. So I think you're going to see it continue to proliferate. Yeah, Kevin, I love your signal on doing that quick search on LinkedIn. <laughs> we do that from time to time here at PatSnap and use that at all hands. We've done a, a search just literally on innovation, Kevin, recently. <laughs> yep. And the numbers were stunning if you were to benchmark them against other areas, like even areas like decision science or data science. If you just put in innovation, I know that's a broad one, but you yielded some focused results it got everyone just really excited about the impending wave because i think job creation <laughs> is a great signal to potential software categories and, and technology categories so I, I like that one as an example so so kevin let's get into kind of that that disneyland imag- imaginative state so if we were sitting here in 2028 where do you think we would be on on the scale on how AI has evolved the innovation process? Or what, where do you think we'll be at in terms of impact? Yeah, I think if we go back to this, if we think about the whole innovation process starting at that front end where you're ideating. I believe, I hope and believe by 2028, you'll see much more of an enterprise deployment of tools to actually do this robustly. 
you know, if we're in the early days now, like we talked about before, you should see maturity. You should see people learn from their past failures. And we should see implementation of just better ways and more systematic ways of choosing what we work on next. I think I think it would be a disappointment if we if we didn't see advances there. So if you're looking for tangible measures, you know, there's measurements of the the number of initiatives that turn into successful products, and it's not good. <laughs> if you generally look at the statistics, if you when we look back, my anticipation and hope is that within the decade, you'll start to see the hit rate or success rate of idea to to value increase. However, that's going to be measured or however we measure it today, we should see organizations start to see uh, a true uptick in some kind of metric like that, because otherwise, then, then I'd say this experiment's been a failure. That's definitely a, a vision that we get really excited about as well. And, and, the, and this whole piece around analytics-driven innovation, where you've got a confluence of unstructured data all connected, where do you think we are on that front in terms of market understanding and acceptance on using a variety sources, a variety, a range of unstructured data and linking that together to glean foresight? Where do you think we are in terms of development on on that front? I'd say still still in the early days of that. And I think the the disconnect is you know i suspect you and i could talk a long time about this ray is the the belief that data itself will be the end solution so i i think that the disconnect is really you're not really looking for data that's not the objective the objective is the insight so you want something that can tell you what to do next how do I take whatever I'm working on and make it more successful? So where I see the disconnect is, I think there's, you've got to come at this from two ends. You come at this from that data unification standpoint that you're talking about. And I think that's rapidly improving. A lot of cool stuff happening there. But I, I do think coupling that with the, the, the human in the loop, the right person on the other end of that spectrum, to interpret the data, interpret those trends, to pull out that insight and get you to whatever you're supposed to do next. I think that's the gap that needs to be closed. Cutting edge uh, data tools, cutting edge algorithms, trends, predictions, forecasts, coupled with people who can really make educated uh, uh, decisions based on those insights. I think that there's room to join those two things more effectively. So I, I, I think we're making huge strides on all that. You know, we've got the experts in different places. The data is coming up. How do we join them and not make it necessarily a competition between them, but make it more uh, kind of a, a unified goal to make those things work better together? So when you mentioned human in the loop there, Kevin, are you touching upon where you might have market insights teams at certain companies or, or foresight teams being intimidated on potentially 
machine learning displacing some of their work. So there's that kind of cultural resistance or is that a challenge or is it just fundamentally understanding the technology? How do we bridge that holy grail gap of ML, unstructured data, and human in the loop working in synergy? I think it's both of the things you mentioned. It's there's a there's certainly a threat a threatening aspect. You know, you only need to you know look up workforce workforce automation or AI and jobs of the future and see how much you know how much discussion there is about the fear of displacing jobs. And some jobs will be displaced, of course, but it is a natural reaction when you talk about automation, which is really a big push of, of what we're talking about here is automating insights. Of course, that's a threat to people who whose job it is to generate and interpret, uh, generate insights based on data. So I think there's definitely going to be that obstacle from a just a, a threatening personal standpoint, you know, threatening the role, threatening the expertise of people. But where I think that also that I truly believe in the human in the loop part of this is that particularly if you work in an organization that is science-based, you will never trust an algorithm blindly. As a scientist myself, I would never, I don't care how much it's been explained to me. I don't care how rigorously it's been developed. You will always have, a, a, a good scientist is always going to be skeptical about results presented to them. So you're, you're always going to have to bridge that gap uh, where hopefully you can superpower that, that innovator, you know, whether it's a foresight person or a scientist, you know, my position, I guess I would be on this, this set of technologies would be, how do we use it to superpower the, the people, the smart people we already have? rather than displace them. Uh, and I know that might be controversial, that might be that might differ from other perspectives, but I, I believe that's the that's the vision that I most would embrace going forward. Well Kevin, I mean we've really enjoyed the exchange with you today. So just for our audience, um, if they need to find you on the internet, where's the best place to look you up and, and kind of learn about your research and, and the great work you and your team do? Yeah. Uh, you can always find me on LinkedIn for sure. Um, not super active on Twitter, but I am on Twitter at KevCC. And uh, the other place uh, is if you go to our Lux Research Inc. website, uh, I'm part of the leadership team there. So you can learn more about us there. Always reach out to me through our, our platform there as well. Brilliant. Well, well, Kevin, we've really enjoyed meeting you today. And, and thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, have, have an awesome week. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ray. Appreciate it. Now, there you have it for today's interview, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'd like to thank our guest, Kevin C., for taking the time to chat with Ray today about the fascinating area of technology and what's gearing up to be a game changer for digital R&D. We hope you enjoy an amazing holiday break. We will be back in the new year with episode four. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.